You're listening to Power Plays, the podcast hosting conversations between policymakers, engineers, business leaders, and others who are influencing the internet's infrastructure and institutions in ways that impact all of us today. Here's your host, Aiden Fertiline. Welcome to Power Plays, presented by Grant for the Web. I'm Aiden Fertiline. Today on the show, we have Dominique Lazansky. I have been so excited for this interview. We are going to discuss China, the G7, standards, the ITU. But before I welcome her to the program, if you don't know Dominique, she helped launch the first iTunes store in the US when she was at Apple. She was the director of public policy at the GSMA. She was a member of the multi-stakeholder advisory group of the United Nations Internet Governance Forum. And now she's completing her doctorate in the history of architecture, among many other hats that she wears. Dominique Lazansky, a very warm welcome today to Power Plays. Now, a question I always ask guests on Power Plays is an icebreaker, and that is, what is a contrarian thought that you have about business or culture that others might disagree with you on? Well, <laughs> where do we begin? I think it's my thought is only contrarian because it's not uh, popular, but I think it's right. And that is, I, I do actually believe that less regulation and free trade promote and enable more innovation, including with competition, but also make people freer in the long run because they have they have choice and they can create their own businesses and spend money and and do things that they want to do. So I don't know how controversial that is, but I, I certainly think it's not very popular these days. Maybe not in Europe. Maybe there's a transatlantic divide. <laughs> I don't know. Just a note for our listeners, we're recording this conversation in mid-June 2021. So Dominique, last week, Fastly, which operates a large content distribution network, suffered an outage for several hours. Other content distribution networks like Cloudflare last year, AWS last November, they've had similar outages, bringing down large swaths of the web with them. In your view, do these outages reveal any weaknesses in the internet's architecture? So thanks for that question. And <clears throat> as you probably know, this is something I'm thinking a lot about. The Fastly outage last week actually was caused by a, a problem uh, in, I think, an update. So I think it was literally a line of code that was incorrect that caused the problem. But Derek, we didn't know that at the time until Fastly made a, a statement. And one of the things that... Um, the internet community has been concerned about and discussing a lot is the idea of either concentration or consolidation of who runs, quote unquote, the internet, meaning where the infrastructure is or who who has it. Predominantly, the internet has been developed in a decentralized way, meaning you know, there's lots of people developing it, lots of people using it, obviously, lots of infrastructure backend stuff like network and, and data centers, all the things that we don't think about day to day. But it, because of the economies of scale, fewer and fewer companies are entering in to actually invest and build out the internet. So Fastly is something called a CDN, right? And it's, it's one of the ways to make content more, as you know, make content more, um, easier to access, I guess, and quicker, right, on the edge of the network without going into too much detail. And there's only 
predominantly six companies. There's many companies out there, but only six that take most of the traffic of the internet. And and as we saw, websites like uh, uk.gov and many others went down quite quickly, were restored within an hour, which I think is a good thing. But it really speaks to like, should there be some way to, to sort of get more entrance, more decentralization, more people competing for, for running the, the back end of the internet. And basically, not only would that be to, to stop issues like this, but you would have more ideas and more innovation around security, for example, and more competition with privacy, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think it's, there's a big question going on right now around this. Hope that wasn't too technical. <laughs> Not at all. And the outage certainly had a significant economic impact on some of the websites that went down. Amazon's operations in the US were only offline for several minutes before its traffic could be rerouted. And they apparently still lost $30 million in sales. I didn't realize Amazon used Fastly, but the fact that they and so many others did really amplified the impact of what might have otherwise been a little noticed glitch. I want to turn now to an internet draft that you've been working on. Internet drafts are working documents of the Internet Engineering Task Force, the IETF, that are works in progress. And to quote from your document, you write, it aims to discuss recent areas of internet consolidation that are technical, economic, and engineering focused, and provide some suggestions for advancing the discussion. Can you walk us through that, Dominique? From the perspective of the underlying architecture of the public internet, what are the implications of consolidation on internet architecture? Thank you for pointing to my draft. And I think one thing we should mention is um, in discussing consolidation that we just discussed <laughs> about Fastly, um, standards matter because that's how things interoperate, whether it's networks or data centers or content. So that's why the IETF is, a, is important. And it's important to discuss this there. So the implications are, there are and have been a small number of very vocal attendees at the IETF. It's changed over time. So in the 90s, you saw different companies than you do now. But what's important about that is um, because, and I mean Facebook and Google and, and companies like that, Mozilla as well, because that they're attending and able to afford to attend, which is a key point, in such a great uh, number, right, they can sort of introduce and change different types of standards and, and which would mean different types of internet architecture. So we've seen a lot of um, uh, post-Snowden as well. We've also seen a lot of internet drafts and technologies that remove the decisions, some decisions at the network level and push them to the end at the content level. Now, why is that important? If you're Facebook or Google, you want to be able to see who your users are, track the data, have the information, where they're coming from. And if you completely encrypt the network over which the uh, internet runs, which is what's been a big push through some of the drafts, all that information goes to those companies rather than to companies running the network. For example, AT&T or, um, I don't know, Vodafone, any of those companies that have network um, equipment. So this is really interesting because it means a few companies are really pushing for that sort of model end-to-end -end encryption on the network. 
Um, initially, there was, you know, the reason for that was obviously Snowden and privacy and, and snooping and surveillance. But we're 10 years out from that now. Snowden is happily married and has children in Russia, <laughs> which I would not wish on anybody. But, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so basically that's, you know, we're, we've moved past that, our technology and our interest in a stable internet, especially after COVID, right, has really moved beyond that. So our draft basically, um, and it's not just me who wrote it, I want to point that out, and they'll be, we're editing it for the next meeting coming up in, um, in a, a month and a half, I think. So basically, our draft really wants to look at a couple of things. So uh, there's obviously a social, economic, and political aspect to what's going on, right? Meaning economies of scale, right? So Facebook and Google, many people have Gmail, you know, or map their domains to, you know, it's easy, right? It's all on the phone. If you have the Android phone, if you have an iPhone, everything's together. It's easy to use. Most of us use something like that. Um, so, and we're only using either an Android flavored phone or an iPhone, you know, iOS in, in the West predominantly, I'll point that out. So basically, I wanted to point that out and look at the economy of it. And there's been a few others as well who've done this recently. Jeff Houston just had a blog on Circle ID about sort of the history of antitrust and, and economies of scale and too big to fail, that kind of thing. But also, I think it's really important, as I was just describing with the encryption, and the reason I was describing with it is it's really important to kind of look at how the internet is changing from a technical point of view. And that's the other half of the draft. And really, we look at DNS over HTTPS, which is really nothing we're gonna get into detail here, but basically looking at, again, how the domain name servers, how you how a website's called when you type it in, um, how that process is being moved from the network once again to the to endpoints, to be sitting, servers sitting in, um, in you know, like Google, for example. So we wanted to really highlight this, um, articulate the problem, right? The problem, why is this a problem? So 30 years ago in the internet, and this is different than the web, by the way, we have to remember the internet is the technical sort of aspect of it. The web is more the content, right? I, I could try some crazy on Twitter and people <laughs> complain the two that should know better, but. Um, you know, the internet wasn't designed to, you know, be the main way we all worked in COVID <laughs> for the last year and a half, or indeed take banking details that needed to be private and encrypted and secure. Um, but it was designed to be resilient, as you pointed out. Um, it was designed to, oh, if there's traffic, internet traffic going one way and it can't get there this way, it's going to go another way and we're not going to really figure it out. Like you said, you really didn't even realize amazon.com was down. And probably the rest of us were just like, what's going on? I bet it's my own home internet. I'll just refresh. And eventually it came back up and it was designed that way. But now as the design gets more mature, we wanted to highlight the fact that again, there's fewer companies participating. They're setting a direction that's very specific and we need to look at the problem and we need to kind of find some solutions. So I'm gonna, if you don't mind, just move to some of the suggestions that we made in the first draft. And really some of them have already started to happen, <laughs> which is great. 
So we really call on there to be protocol considerations. So protocol is part of a way of developing bits of technical internet backend. That's a really bad description, but I'll leave it at that. So people to be more aware of consolidation in the process of protocol development. So have that discussion during the process rather than at the end point. But also there needs to be more discussion within the IETF and the IAB, the Internet Architecture Board, who I always class as the grandfathers and grandmothers of the internet, right? People that are basically just trying to take a longer view. They're, they're appointed for about three years, I think, and trying to take a longer view on the future of the architecture of the internet. And there's been a lot of interest. We've had a lot of emails and discussions. We just had a consolidation workshop, which will be the first of a few, hopefully. And there's been a lot of interest. I've received a lot of emails about people wanting to contribute to, to this draft, but there are other drafts out there as well. So that's sort of where we are. It's, it's fascinating and really interesting and also amazing. Like if you think about the amount of traffic over the internet in the last 18 months from home, it's all worked really, really well. <laughs> you know, there's been some glitches, lots of upgrades, by the way, lots of new equipment and things that, you know, companies are just getting on doing. But, um, but yeah, that's where we are right now. And, and that's something I'm interested in. You said before that there had been a lot of interest in having this conversation. I'm curious, from whom has there been this interest? Is it interest from those who are associated with these large tech companies that we've all heard of? Or is it interest coming from other players altogether? Because I'm wondering, what incentives are there for these larger players to willingly secede some of their influence to be able to, and I'm being a little flippant here, ram through whatever protocol is in their own interests? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really great question. So the interest lies in what I'm finding, people that I'm talking to are all over the map. Like they don't necessarily work for Google and Facebook <laughs> or Mozilla, but they're not just network operators, right? Or some are independent, um, long-term attendees and participants, engineers, a couple academics. So that kind of thing. There's actually a really interesting academic in Germany He's actually looking at how to measure consolidation, which I think is very key to have data backing up the claims, right? He has a few papers on showing the measurement of consolidation and how it's happening. And I, I'm me, I'm particularly interested in, in hopefully doing more with that because that's really, really cool. But anyway, there's a lot of people and we're very, very lucky that at the IETF being online, there's a lot more people participating at the moment, which is great. Less expensive to travel. <laughs> so incentives. So that's, again, for the companies that I've mentioned before, creating a network that allows for, um, I don't want to call it harvesting, but allows for the use of data as they want to use it at, the, at that level is really important. That also means they can build out, you know, interoperable data uh, centers and and different technical things that'll work in a way that they're interested, right? Because it's all about, for them, it's all about data, right? And driving data. Um, and obviously in for networks, it's about metadata and being able to manage your networks. And so there's a lot of pushback from network operators all over, not just, you know, not just the US ones, but other ones as well, who really are trying to push back on this, but network operators, attend in few, much fewer numbers because they want to be able to, you know, if there's a problem with their traffic or if there's traffic that is like 
you know, overloaded, they want to be able to manage their traffic and it's becoming increasingly hard um, as the tra as the data, the information gets push pushed towards Google and Facebook who who really keen on having it. So uh, I hope that's not too technical as well, but I, I think that makes kind of gives you a place of two different types of um, views. Can you hone in on one thing, please? Maybe our listeners are not familiar with what the end-to-end -end principle is and why it's important. I know in your draft, it talks about this transition from end-to-end to edge-to-edge. -to -edge. Why should people care about this? Yeah, sure. So I'm just going to quote my draft because it's easier to do that. <laughs> so the end-to-end -end principle, I believe, if I remember correctly, shows up. It was a draft uh, document in RFC uh, about 20 to 25 years ago. It probably needs relooking at, and that's something we've thought about. So it says, and in my draft, it says the end-to-end -end principle is the idea that reliability and trustworthiness reside at the end nodes of networks rather than in the networks itself. In other words, the idea was that the network itself is was dumb and intelligence is at the edge or the end. However, the internet architecture is evolving in such a way that this principle is changing. So if you think, let's, let's actually take a, a couple real world examples, right? So if you think about all the cyber attacks we've had recently that have been in the news, okay? Those cyber attacks basically happen at the edge of the network, right? At that point between the network and the, and the consumer or customer. Um, you know, the, the ransomware ones, right? I think, you know, there's a lot of social engineering security issues where it's an email with a, with a malicious link. I mean, that's at the edge of the network, literally, right? Because it's already come through the network. So the idea is that's where it needs to be most secure and that's where it needs to be able to um, develop protocols that will allow for it to be uh, resilient. If you start doing things that change that endpoint, again, so servers at the endpoint that can only be hosted by certain companies or are only hosted by certain companies, things like that, you reduce, I'm worried about security, you reduce security, but other sort of reliability of network edges and endpoints. So basically the end time principle, you know, 25 years ago was like, don't mess up the endpoint. <laughs> Think about that. Um, and right now, I mean, it's good to raise awareness of all this stuff and really discuss this because in the, at the end of the day, a lot of these security problems we're having and a lot of the attacks that are going on like literally every second of every day that thankfully we don't know about because they're unsuccessful um, really can be resolved by, you know, baking in security principles as well into protocols. And, and that's sort of, that's something that's, that goes along with consolidation because we want to make sure that, that that resilience is still there. It sounded like there was some kind of police chase past your window just then. I actually, it's really bad. I lived near a major hospital about a mile away, one and a half kilometers away. And it was kind of like the epicenter of like COVID stuff here. But it's only when I'm on calls. It was kind of relevant to what you were discussing too. At least someone's on the case. Anyway, the internet draft there is a lot that I like about it. It talks about protocol design and how larger organizations have staff who can advance their proposals through standards bodies and thus push through the adoption of the protocols they consider important. The draft says, and I'm quoting from it now, 
there is no coincidence that these companies are the ones that have facilitated consolidation on a commercial level and are facilitating consolidation on a protocol level. End quote. Dominique, can you share an example of when this has happened? You mentioned very briefly before DNS over HTTPS, which I think could be an example. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good example. And again, I'll, I'll try to be very top level. I mean, the, the devil's in the detail, but um, but being top level is is kind of a bit easier. And I know you know a lot about DNS in particular <laughs> through other reasons, um, through other work. But uh, so DNS is the domain name server, right? So basically, domain name servers translate um, your destination, where you're going, your website, whatever, uh, from a number into a name, right? So that we don't have to have like 1.3.2. You know, xxx kind of thing. We can have um, Dominique.com or, or again, Amazon.com. Obviously, much better for a variety of reasons, including just memory. <laughs> but um, so how that happens is the servers have to sit in the internet somewhere, right? If they sit in the network. Um, right to the, near the edge, the resolution is quite quick and it happens quickly. But the other thing is it's also, an, um, without, again, without going into detail, it's also open. Like the, the process of you know, doing that transition is not necessarily encrypted. It's quite open, there's a handshake and um, at least it's changing, but at least that's what it is, which is actually a positive thing because if there is a man in the middle kind of attack, you can see who it's from and what's going on. And if, even if it's masked, there, there are, there's a lot of information. Um, thankfully, that doesn't happen that often. Um, and also, the internet, again, is resilient enough to deal with that, the way the DNS is set up. So DNS over HTTPS is effectively two things. Encrypted DNS, meaning you, you can't see that handshake when that happens. And also, the servers move from the network trusted client, whoever that is, um, to the endpoint trusted client. Um, and that is to, that's going to be a handful of companies like Google and Cloudflare and, and other companies like that. Um, so the question really is, and one of the arguments that was made is, do you really trust your network operator? I mean, I do. <laughs> Quite honestly, I do. Um, having worked for a number of them, knowing what they do. Um, and knowing how difficult it is to do anything nefarious, even though people think they do. <laughs> it's like almost impossible. Um, and also, I trust them to resolve things quickly uh, in the way the resilience has worked with the servers today. Now, if you move, if you A, encrypt and B, move the servers that are encrypted to somebody like Google, even though it's encrypted through that process and you and I can't see it, they have to validate the handshake and, and that whole process. So it becomes a black box. And again, they get the information, right? Um, the, the thing is, though, in my personal opinion, and I will say this on any, any day, there is almost no reason to have a DNS encrypt. I mean, it's just like, why, right? Okay. There are reasons to have HTTPS, banking, shopping, these are absolutely extremely important reasons. Um, and, and yes, privacy is of the utmost. Um, but we all know that like you send an email and anyone could see it, right? Like for the most part, unless you use um, encrypted email and all of that. But 
you know, on a day-to-day basis, eh, it doesn't matter, at least to me. I'm not, I don't really care. Most people don't really care. So I, I think the question is why, right? Like you start to think, why make this process happen? And I, the, without going into the historical detail of it, I was working with network operators when this whole thing came down. And they were taken aback because most of them didn't attend the ITF. And it was also developed in-house um, at Google, I think, if I remember correctly. Um, and so basically, they just kind of presented it as a fait accompli, almost like, here, it's done. We have a working um, protocol, all that kind of stuff. It's done. And it was it was a lot of interesting discussion around governance and process. Um, and I will say this, this is something that's really, really important. So I'm talking about, you know, big companies really sort of gaming the system almost, right? But here's the thing, and this is, this is really, really important when we move on to talk a little bit more about China and stuff. All of this stuff is transparent. All of these discussions are happening over emails that are publicly accessible. There's lots of arguments, lots of things you don't, lots of really bad arguments, <laughs> but it's all happening you know, at, to a point where we can trace it and track the history and find the people that we want to enter in discussions with and have discussions with them and things like that. And it's it's fairly transparent. We might not agree, obviously. From I don't agree with the process, in the, you know, in terms of consolidation happening. Um, but we're having an amazing conversation about it. And I, I just hope there's more awareness around it, too. I want to turn now to China and in particular to a paper you co-authored with Stacey Hoffman and Emily Taylor last year that was published in the Journal of Cyber Policy. It was titled, Standardizing the Splinternet, How China's Technical Standards Could Fragment the Internet. And it speaks about the Decentralized Internet Infrastructure, DII, that is being developed or advocated for within international standards development organizations. Can you walk us through the DII model and perhaps how it differs from the OSI and TCP slash IP models. Some of our listeners might remember that we recently had Richard Hill on the show discussing the protocol wars, but we might need a little refresher, Dominique, on OSI and TCP IP. He probably did a very good job. So, <laughs> um, but yes, so so the one thing, in spite of consolidation, I should say, the internet is interoperable globally. Um, we are obviously, and, and I don't know who you've had um, on, but we are, there's lots of discussion about national internets in the sense of national regulation and filtering and, you know, from all countries and all different flavors and all different sizes. But despite all of this going on, the internet is actually global, right? Um, you can send an email from Singapore and it will arrive in New York um, quite quickly. <laughs> Uh, that means it uses the same backend, it uses the same protocols, it uses the same uh, network um, systems. Uh, it may be built and designed by different people in different places, but it works. It's global, it's interoperable. Um, and it's, you know, again, there are challenges, but just, just remember from a technical point of view, it works, right? So when you think about TCP IP, um, there are different layers of the internet, and, and hopefully um, uh, Richard Hill has gone into that, uh, you know, where you have the content layer and the network layer and, and all of those different types of layers on which different uh, protocols are built to, to kind of stack up to, uh, to basically how the internet works at different layers 
OSI kind of combines those and makes it a little more efficient. These are theoretical models more than anything else, but they're a good way to describe when you're working on actual protocols and, and what you're trying to achieve. And it's sort of like using a common language. Um, okay, so that's the internet. That's, that's my super brief non-technical overview. <laughs> um, but so what, what China's doing, um, you know, generally in standards, as we've all seen, and, and actually, you know, now in the last week and a half, we've had the G7 and we've had NATO have communiques that either directly or indirectly discuss cyber. NATO in particular mentioned, you know, quality of networks, 5G, security, Belt and Road Initiative, so did G7, you know, so you have this sort of it's a difference of ideology, right? Top down from a, a dictator and non-human rights <laughs> um, uh, country uh, and, you know, bottom up in with all its flaws in democracy with, um, and I would say, rights respecting kind of country. And this is kind of important. So that ideology uh, in the paper, we talk about that transferring over to technical developments um, and to networks. So what's been happening, and uh, the paper came out a bit ago, and so things have moved on a little bit, but not a whole lot. But what's been happening is um, China has been developing and standardizing uh, blockchain type DLT, distributed ledger technologies, I'll say more than blockchain uh, type technologies, along with other bits and pieces of network technologies um, that will create a network to, to deliver content that is um, not best effort, but guaranteed. So the current internet is best effort, and that's important too, because that means in being best effort, the resilience can be distributed. Um, so you, you have the China model, which is guaranteed uh, delivery point to point. So there's no you know, dis, uh, distributed or decentralized um, network. Uh, and it also is using uh, blockchain or distributed ledger technology to identify either a website or a thing, a con piece of content that it's being that's delivering. At least this is the model. This is what we've discovered so far by piecing things together. Why is this important? <laughs> well, it's important. First of all, they're using an international organization like the ITU, which does do important things like you know Spectrum management and spectrum um, alignment and satellite orbitals and things like that that are on a global level really important but they're using china's using the itu to standardize bits and pieces of this technology because because the three there are three standards organizations that are un um, related or un accepted i guess and basically, they come under WTO agreements, meaning they can be freely traded. Once a standard is a standard, um, it goes into the WTO agreements, which means you can go to another country, pay for something, setting up something like a network or a data center and invest in that, but also require certain standards be used, right? Because there's no blocks on the trade. And that's different than, again, what the ITF and other standards organizations may do, which is, you know, focus on usability and interoperability rather than top-down mandating. But the other thing I think that's really important about this is, first of all, it's there's no guarantee it's going to work. 
Second of all, you know, this further sort of facilitates the splinter net idea. But third of all, you know, their flavor of distributed ledger technology includes third party access, which means, you know, it's not fully encrypted and anonymized like like Bitcoin or blockchain versions. And blockchain to me is really all about, you know, really good for like contracts, buying and selling or transfer of contracts. That's what I'm most excited about. <laughs> but basically, you know, there, there has to be government access, right? And that means that if people are, you know, if people are identified, if people have identities in order to get onto this network, um, certain ethnic types, for example, they can be, you know, they can be monitored and managed in a third party governmental way. Um, and that third party access aligns with their regulations, um, with their cybersecurity bills and various things. So that's kind of, that's not very good, obviously, for human rights reasons. But also, we just don't want the internet to, to develop in a very different way. And the technology is vague enough in the proposals that the assessment is that it may or may not work. That's my assessment. And the technology itself is quite poor from what we know so far. So there's been quite a lot of talk about it. And, and thankfully, the, the situation in, with the Uyghurs has become more and more visible because there was also a, quite a few articles about standardizing AI and facial recognition, again, through the ITU as well, so that they could bypass trade barriers. A lot of those companies that had participated in that standardization are on the um, sanctions list in the US and there's an FT article on it if, if you yeah, I can point to. So I think I think if you take a global look at this, yeah, it's technology, right? But also this is where it starts to get political. There's another whole standards debate. A lot of engineers don't want to enter into the political debates or don't even want to be aware of it because it's just not what they do, right? But to me, this is fascinating because it plays into exactly what we've seen with NATO and the G7 in the last week and a half. Exactly. It's another layer. It's part of the Belt and Road process and an initiative. And it's clever because they have so many more people to throw at these things rather than being what we do in the UK and US and, and Germany and, and Europe, Western Europe and, and, you know, Australia and Japan and whatever, which is rely on industry and user take up for these things, which is why the internet's very successful already. <laughs> well, Dominique, there are just so many strains that I want to pull apart and follow up upon. So thank you for the outstanding overview. Firstly, you said that there are no guarantees that DII works and that it's your assessment that it might not work. So is this purely a theoretical proposal? Does Huawei have a lab somewhere running a prototype? Or we just don't know because it's just not a whole lot of transparency. Yeah, that's a great question. So it definitely is coming out of uh, Huawei research, but I think... Um I think in China and the US as well. But basically we think, we think, we think um, that it is, there is a network running in China, like a, a test network, a test bed. Um, there may be uh, some version of it in Russia as well, but no, no one's sure about that. But I mean, it's, I'm pretty sure because for example, we're, we've been at meetings where somebody from Huawei, and, and by the way, yeah, it's Huawei doing a lot of the technical assessment of this, but but to understand, this is a bit of a side tangent, but I'm just going to point this out. To understand like 
the process is that Huawei can't just randomly show up. They, they will say, yeah, we're a private company. We're going to randomly show up to a standards. You know, they have to go through so many steps internally in China through their ministry process to have the standards they put into these bodies approved from the Communist Party, literally. Um, and as you, you've seen the consolidation of power in China, um, that very top-downness really becoming even more and more consolidated, uh, the process goes as far as the president, right? It does, it really does on, a on every level, but on standards as well. So that's important to say when, you know, yes, companies in the US and UK probably talk to the governments a lot, especially around information sharing on security issues through their certs at a very basic level, you know? But in China, it's it's almost they have to be approved. And this is really important. I think people don't really understand. There's a really great paper that came out a couple of weeks ago that talks about how the everything's set up because it's changed in the last couple of years. So, so I wanted to highlight that. That's really important. That relationship is very different than in the West. Um, I would almost say there's a committee, I think there's a committee uh, that approves these things, literally reviews them and improves them. So anyway, so the Huawei stuff, the Huawei technology in its bits and pieces that have all obviously been approved, um, we do think that there is there is some sort of implementation of it. Yep. Sorry, that was a tangent, but I think it's an important one. <laughs> I think that's really important too, but is this necessarily problematic? I'm being very provocative with this question. However... Is it okay if China has its own conception of what the internet could be? China, after all, has its own style of government. Is it legitimate for China to try to share its own values with other countries that may share or dream of having the same style of government? There was an interesting piece in the Financial Times three years ago, I think, about Tanzania being confused as to how it ended up with this undesirable Western internet rather than a Chinese-style firewall, and it compared the Western internet to colonialism, forcing undesirable values onto their nation. I guess I'm asking, is it legitimate for China to create technologies and to advocate for standards that promote their own values? So that's, that's the million-dollar question, right? So why does it matter effectively? Yeah, of course, they can do whatever they want in that country. Uh, <laughs> um and obviously, it will be used for tracking um, and uh, saving and consolidating individual pieces of information. This is nothing new in terms of, um, I mean, we're seeing it now with COVID, right? You know, in, in different ways. Um, this is absolutely nothing new. Um, I think it comes back to a bigger philosophical issue, right, which, which is more ideological. Like, how do you see humans surviving and being economically, physically, everything, being healthy, right? Healthy and happy and thriving. I genuinely personally believe that there is no interest in human life in China from the Communist Party. I genuinely believe that it, you know, from the Communist Party, everybody is a means to an end. That's a longer game of multi-generational ends, right? Which is really sad because, you know, individually, a number of people from China I know are just just amazing, lovely, interesting people. And that's just that's how people are. Right. But I think that's what it comes down to. I mean, again, we've heard it at the G7 this week, the idea that 
if you want to have a world that values human life and and tries to lift people out of poverty and you know creates a sustainable environment globally and works on very many issues right climate change being one of them for example you need people that can can do that right rule of law is super important respect for human rights is super important and i think unfortunately in a lot of countries like tanzania and zimbabwe is another great example they don't have that right so and i mean if you believe in that as messy as everything is with democracy, then I think you really have to think about, well, global and interconnected internet is part of that process for communication, for education, you know, for everything, keeping in touch with your families, shopping. Yeah, granted, you you and I are not going to buy, well, at least I'm not going to buy anything from China at the moment, <laughs> but I probably do and don't know it, right? But like direct from China, probably not. And I'm probably never going to China <laughs> with that because of the publication of that paper. But <laughs> but on a serious note, right, you just have to think about what sort of system works best. And it can't be taught. It just can't be top down. And you you know that that's that's sort of what we've seen over the last couple of weeks of being talked about. So if you don't have an interoperable Internet, then you start to then you really start to have these very big factions, right? And it doesn't help with trying to come together, trying to solve problems, trying to find areas of cooperation with China and Russia and other countries like that. And also lifting people out of poverty in a lot of, not just developing countries, but all over the world, right? So um, I think Africa is an interesting problem too, because I, I remember that article really well, but also it's an issue because they've been given so many loans through the Belt and Road Initiative, not just with the internet technology, um, but with other things like mining and I don't know, it goes on and on. But I think there's now you're seeing there are a lot of issues and pushback on, you know, the, the sort of investments and paying everything back and the quality of all of that. And so I think you start to think, you know, it's like, did that really work well? Was that col colonization almost really effective? You know, it's better if maybe have what Rwanda is doing really and building out quite a lot of stuff and trying to have tech hub centers and things, although a lot of their technology is also Chinese backend. But <laughs> but you know what I mean? We could probably talk about this for, <laughs> you and I could probably talk about it for the rest of the day, if not until tomorrow, right, about that. But I think we really have to take a bigger view on it. And I tend to see things in a bigger picture anyway. I'm curious on a more pragmatic level, what is the likelihood of the standards that China is advocating for in various standards bodies. I mean, is anything going to come out of this? Who are China's allies? How much power and influence does China have, say, at the ITU? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think a lot of countries, so just starting with the last bit of that, I think a lot of countries are learning from China's, um, uh, you know, their, their influence within the UN, right? Uh, in the sense that, um, you know, they have certain mem certain people at high levels. So the Secretary General of the ITU is Chinese, as one example. They're on the Security Council, I think, human rights, etc. Um, and so that means that there's always very polarized opposition to different things going on. And so there's no coherency, right? So I, I think until recently, the Uyghurs weren't even anywhere near the Human Rights Council. And this has been going on quite a long time. We, I, the Uyghurs are just one of many examples, but it's something I 
worry a bit more about because of the AI and the surveillance that's been standardized and used in that part of the world that we've seen recently a little bit. There was like a Wall Street Journal uh, report a couple of years ago, and then we've seen others come through as well, I think. But I think the other question is, so <laughs> this is where it gets interesting. So the whole issue around 5G and Huawei in Europe and the UK and the US, again, speaks to exactly what you've asked, right? So who's going to be building the networks? Well, Huawei is definitely building networks in certain countries, definitely building a component or part of the network in Russia for 5G, definitely. And also in other countries, they tend to be the cheapest. They tend to to be rolled out quite a lot, um, et cetera. We can go into IP theft if you want, but that's not my area. But basically, there's a lot of reasons why a country who wants to at least have a baseline domestic 5G network set up will, will turn to Huawei. So allies, unsuspectingly, and I, I don't want to say this is the Cold War because I don't actually believe we're going back to that point. But I think that, you know, the allies are, you've got everyone from Hungary, which is kind of scary, all the way through to different countries with Belt and Road initiatives that, you know, tend to be like Myanmar, another example, and increasingly so based on what, you know, they were liberalizing until the coup and now they're kind of reversing as well. And then you have interesting, you have countries that are sort of on this edge of like still trying to transition out of like different parts of their development, right? That might have bought bits and pieces from China, but don't know how to coherently put it together because they just, the government's like changed frequently and things like that. So that's just sort of accidental. That's not even like, you know, nefarious if you want to say anything like that. But I think you have to look at it from that way. You have to look at it from a cost point of view and an ideological point of view, right? So obviously Russia is going to align, but other countries are just doing it because it's more effective and cheaper, right? And the standards help with, again, the, the access to trade. And that's true, you know, for other companies as well. But just, yeah, it's something that facilitates that trade to be able to build out new networks. It's almost time for us to wrap up. But one last question. You mentioned the G7. The G7 communique has some very interesting language around technical standards and standard setting. It advocates for an industry-led multi-stakeholder approach while acknowledging that standards impact norms and values. Did this stick out to you? Was there anything else in the communique that you found interesting, Dominique? Yeah, so it'd be worth looking at the uh, digital statement, I think it's called. So it was a couple weeks ago, or a couple weeks prior, maybe a month prior. I'm losing all sense of time working from home permanently. <laughs> I did. Don't you feel that? <laughs> I have to create more structure so I know what day of the week it is. <laughs> but I'm um, sorry. So I think it was they, they had digital ministers meet, not in Cornwall, but they met or they might have. I don't think they did. And And if you look at that, there's even more specific approaches that the agreements that they make, which include agreeing to share information on standards, agreeing to um, participate in standards organizations, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I think it's really, really interesting because standards is the base component of any technology, whether, you know, it's not just internet technology, right? Or 5G, it goes beyond that, everything really. So I think it's been really interesting because um, in a lot of standards organizations, like-minded countries just don't have as many people. And I think now you'll see a lot more cooperation and discussion on it. 
too. So it's it's kind of cool. But yeah, definitely you and the listeners have a look at the the digital statement that came out from those ministers. Because I think that's where the if you're interested in more detail on it, that's where it is. It talks about safety online as well as data protection too. I have to check that out then. Dominique Lazansky, thank you very much. Thank you. It's really good to uh, talk to you again. <laughs> I'm Aidan Ferdelin, and this has been Power Plays. Thanks for joining us today. Next time on Power Plays, we're speaking with Richard Witt, an 11-year veteran of Google's policy team, about the future of data protection, ad tech, and human autonomy online. This has been Power Plays. Power Plays is a production of Etunu. The guests on this program speak only for themselves, and the views expressed do not necessarily align with those of Etunu. Copyright 2021, Etunu Corporation. All rights reserved.